At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Last week was the anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission, which saw Neil Armstrong take steps on the moon. And in listening to people uh, call in about that and reading a lot of the email correspondence that I got, the thing that I was struck by is what that did to ignite the imagination of probably everybody in the country, maybe even everybody in the world, when it came to space exploration. I read this uh, article that uh, William Shatner, uh, a talk that William Shatner had given, all about his trip to space and how, even though he was only up there for a few minutes, he wanted to make sure that he made the most of his trip to space and watched out the window of their spacecraft and saw the Earth and saw everything in it. And I really think that I found both of those stories so inspiring because the bottom line is there is so many th- exciting things happening right now when it comes to space exploration and space travel. You have all the private sector space travel led by the space billionaires uh, Bezos and Branson and Musk. And then you have what the images that we're getting back from the James Webb Space Telescope, and we're just seeing images that I, I think they look like there's something out of a Star Trek film. Really, really impressive. And that's to say nothing, and I realize this is kind of a totally separate category, that's to say nothing of the fact that the government, whether it's the Pentagon, whether it's Congress, or whether it's uh, other government agencies, finally seem to be willing to take these UFO sightings or UAP sightings that we've been seeing for the last, you know, I don't know, uh, 80 years or maybe more, kind of seriously. So if it were up to me, I would talk about space all day long, every day. But bottom line is, I don't have the kind of expertise when it comes to space that I'd need to in order to do that. But we have... Somebody that does. So I may not have the answers, but I do have a great many questions. And the man to answer those questions about space and everything that involves looking up at the stars is Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. Also the man with the best voice in all of radio. Steve, it is great to talk with you again. Thanks again for joining us. Well, Frank, it's always a pleasure to be with you on the other side of midnight as we continue another episode into the infinite. So thank you again for having me. Steve, what did you end up doing last week for the anniversary of Apollo 11? I'm betting it was something pretty interesting. Well, it's interesting, Frank. I did a number of public events here in Phoenix and in the state of Arizona and, of course, on some other shows that I'm doing across the nation But what we did locally here, we celebrated with a lot of people, many of them seniors, and I find that this is interesting. Many of the senior centers out there and senior communities, it's amazing when you give a presentation like this because I ask, and it's great because this is for the 53rd anniversary, so many in each of these audiences raise their hand and tell me stories, which I feel so humbled Mm. because I could sit there and listen to this all day. But we mark this by showing some interesting movies, you know, brought the space models that I have, all to do what, Frank? To keep the spirit alive for the next generation of people, the younger and middle-aged folks and everybody who's listening that has an interest in this. Let's not give up on this goal of moving us out to the stars. And for many reasons, uh, actually a very good goal, at least in my opinion, and I think yours too. Absolutely. No doubt about it. All right. 
Where to begin? Well, let me begin with the James Webb Space Telescope. This is something that's gotten a lot of attention, and deservedly so. We've seen a lot of images that are quite breathtaking and much more detailed than uh, the similar images of the similar portions of space that are being that have been photographed previously. Can you explain to folks what kind of images we're getting from the James Webb Telescope? Additionally. The question that I keep getting from listeners, and it's one that I've struggled with explaining, but I'm betting you can explain uh, a great deal with a great deal more clarity than I've than I've been able to, is we're told that a lot of these images that we're seeing through the James Webb Telescope are g- images of galaxies and other parts of space from billions of years ago. How is it possible that a telescope that's up there now? is showing us something that happened billions of years ago? Well, the simple answer is this. Let's go back to the great Hubble Space Telescope, still a great piece of technology. Its mirror, Frank, is about seven and a half feet in diameter. But in James Webb, we get a compilation of about 18 mirrors that give us an actual aperture, if you want to call it that, or area to see mirror-wise of over 21 feet or thereabouts. So because we have the capability of seeing in the infrared, in the heat signature, this is the primary uh, devices that you know James Webb is using. The recent telescope images that are coming out that most people saw, one of the first images looked like just a bunch of dots and little curves on there. But what's so fascinating about that, and I'm sure pretty much everybody's seen it by now, television and people, of course, in the media have replayed them many times. You're seeing these little curvy areas like wings around the areas of stars. But what we're actually seeing, and Einstein predicted this very well, that the closer you are to a massive gravity source, light literally gets bent. So in this case, we're looking at multiple images of the same thing through the time-space continuum. But how about this? Recent images, in addition to the ones that we've seen, and some that we're going to be seeing very shortly, show a galaxy at 35 billion light-years away. Now, that's probably one of the big records, which means that we're peering back into the time just a little after the Big Bang, which is actually, in my mind, a big expansion, 235 million years after that expansion happened. And the goal for James Webb is to peer into space as we get closer to 100 million years after the expansion. So the simple answer is, how do we get to see more detail than Hubble? We have a bigger aperture of a mirror. We have a better way to penetrate that is looking in the in the in the you know, area of infrared and this telescope literally. So if we had a thousand foot in diameter mirror, who knows? We'd probably get as close, but not necessarily to the moment of expansion. Hmm. So it's only going to get better. It's just fascinating. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that is fascinating indeed. By the way, we are going to take some questions for Dr. Sky about anything having to do with space or astronomy or the sky in general, whatever. 800-848-9222. That's one 800 848 Nine two 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 to sweeten the pot for our New York area listeners. Actually, no, it doesn't have to be just New York area. It could be anywhere in the country if you feel like making the trip this Saturday. Is uh, whoever Doctor Sky judges to have the best and or most creative question this hour, we are going to give you a pair of tickets to see the Staten Island Ferry Hawks take on the Lancaster Barnstormers. And it's WABC Day, so the WABC on-air talent is going to be playing the NYPD softball team before the game. So whoever comes up with the most intelligent, most creative question this hour, we're going to give you a pair of tickets, uh, and uh, you'll be able to see us make fools of ourselves when it comes to softball. Um, Are you a softball player, Steve? You know, I'm not, but I got to go back as a native New Yorker, Frank. This is interesting. I'm that old that I remember being there. I didn't know much about it, but I was there in the, I called it Shea Stadium back in the 1969 series. I think it was what, Casey Stengel was there as their team manager? Well, no, in 69, it was uh, it was Gil Hodges who just got oh, inducted okay. to the Hall of Fame. But it was Casey oh. Stengel uh, a couple of years before that. He was the first wow. manager the Mets ever had. So, uh, well. yeah, you're going back, uh, you're going back a ways. All right. Um, let me ask you about what's going sure. on with uh, with China. We're seeing this Chinese rocket booster might be coming down to Earth. Why is this Chinese rocket booster coming down to Earth? Where is it going to land? And is this something we need to be worried about? Well, the short story on this is about a Long March 5 rocket. This is China's newest and, in their way, most powerful rocket to launch something very special. It launched back on the 24th. And its payload is the next module 
of an already existing Chinese space station known as Tiangong. On board that particular rocket is the Wintian module. Now that docked with the Tiangong, and that's uh, the, be- the beginning, I should say, of a building block of another series of rockets that are going to launch with the third part of this particular space station in October called the Mingtian. Now, it's only 236 miles above the Earth, which is lower than the ISS, but here's something problematic with this. This is, and it's a little technical, this is a non-hypergolic-fueled rocket, meaning it's not mixing fuels together like we do when you have a fuel and an oxidizer that are burning. It needs a fire or some kind of an ignition source. So we don't really know, but what happened is that particular first stage, it should have come down and it should have done it like, you know, just exactly as it should, but it hasn't. So the latest information I can give the listeners here on another side of midnight is that the latest projections, and this is all done by the good space people out there that track this, get a load of this, July 31st, 7.07 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. But here's the problematic part of it, Frank. It has a window of plus or minus 24 hours. So what I'm saying is Mm. nobody really can tell you where it's coming down, and not to alarm people, but the flight path of this booster rocket is above 88% of the populated area of the Earth. So, wow. But more than likely, these, these debris, these you know, booster rockets, do successfully enter the Earth's atmosphere. And the best place to drop one of these is an area in the South Pacific area just off the coast of like Chile. It's actually what they call a, a rocket ship graveyard because many of them aim for that area because if you take a look at a map, there's probably not much land at all in that area. So that's really what may be happening, at least on this. But it's actually interesting. It's a 187-foot booster. So could you imagine if you were out at sea in a boat or just you know having fun going across the ocean? And you say, oh, my good, honey, or hey, look, take a look, Bob or Frank. Look at that thing. It, by that time, probably would be in pieces and coming down like a large fireball display. But you never know. Look at Skylab. It survived the safe onboard Skylab survive reentry over Australia, and a lot of debris hit the Earth. But let's be uh, you know positive here. More than likely, it should go into the ocean. That's right. at least what the Ch- Chinese hope. Well, you're you don't sound concerned, so I'm not going to get too concerned about it. Not really at this point, but uh, stay tuned because remember when you have a plus or minus 24 hour window. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's uh, not giving us a lot of spe- you know specificity but, on this. That's for sure. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Folks already queuing up. To talk to Dr. Sky, let me begin with Dave in Connecticut. Hello, Dave. Well, I get to lead off. Uh, Doc, does gravity yes. travel at the speed of light, or does it warp space and it goes faster than that? Like maybe what even happens, instantaneous? Well, that's a very good question, and we hope that you might be the winner later on, and we'll be determining that as the show goes on. But what happens is gravity does warp light, so that's the point. So what happens is gravity, as it is, as it exists out in space— when it's closer to, or a light source, I should say, is close to a gravity source. Einstein predicted this, and back in 1919, he was the one who predicted that as closer you get to a gravity source, and he actually found this to be true when there was a total eclipse of the sun, he predicted that Mercury, albeit where it should be in the sky, should be deflected a little bit. Why? Because of the sun's excessive gravity, and he was right. So basically what we're telling you here, and all the listeners of this great show, is that over time, the closer you get to a gravity source, light is actually bent in space. And that's exactly what I was talking about, Dave, with those images coming from James Webb, the first ones. Russell is in Queens. Hello, Russell. Yeah, good evening, guys. Dr. Sky, I was wondering about uh, all these uh, solar storms we've been getting. Yes, sir. Uh, The solar flares, and a lot of them uh, seem to be... Aimed at the Earth. Yes, is, and that's is true. Is this the preparation for another Carrington event? Well, you know, Russell, you're very much on target here. From people who don't know what you just described, back in 1859, we have one of the most powerful solar storms ever to hit the Earth. In the days before computers, I'd call the telegraph the analog Internet of the day. The power of those solar storms actually set wires and those cables on fire on the Earth. Right now, Russell, what's happening is solar activity on solar cycle 25 is very strong. But you got to remember, flares travel at the speed of light. So if a solar flare blasts off the sun, it'll get here within eight minutes. That's how long light takes to get from the sun to the earth. But these coronal mass ejections, big proton and energy storms that come up through the sun, 
through the corona take 15 to 20 hours or so. Both are not good, but just keep an eye on, uh, well, keep an eye on space weather because it definitely will affect the Earth as solar cycle 25 increases. Absolutely. 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with your questions in a moment. I have a lot of questions myself. Steve Cates is here. If you ever want to Follow the Dr. Sky blog and see a whole bunch of interesting stories, including some of the ones that we're going to be touching upon throughout the next hour. You can go to KTAR.com. There's a ton of great stuff on there. And uh, if you're interested in space or astronomy, there's some great content on there for you. But we'll continue with your questions in just a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Dr. Sky, kind enough to join us for the hour. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. side of midnight a show where we enjoy talking about what's in the sky and uh, we're doing it with dr sky uh, his christian name is steve cates he's a veteran radio and tv broadcaster and edutainer who has a great deal of expertise when it comes to astronomy and space steve i understand there's uh, a great deal of searching for asteroids coming down from the sun what are these asteroids who's doing the searching and when are they coming down Well, that's a very interesting series of questions. We're cutting to the chase on this, Frank. It's interesting. For the longest time, scientists have said, we need to find a way to see what's coming around the edges of the sun. Problematic thing number one. Telescopes in the daytime, if you're looking at a solar telescope, the overpowering light of the sun is going to prevent you from seeing much of anything because of that light. Now, we find out that many organizations and many scientists around the world, including the big observatories in Chile that's set up in that you know, rather dry and clear sky, they're saying it's about time to do these wide field, gigantic, as I call them, they're like giant cameras with megapixels. And we're going to be looking there because that's an area where we really have a weak spot. So anything that sneaks through there, albeit maybe the size of a school bus, all the way up to the size of an asteroid that could be a global killer, we need to have this technology. And not to scare people, but we've been going kind of blind for so long Many people may not realize that over the course of even the last 10 years, small objects from space, not just meteors, but small chunks of asteroids have actually made it through the atmosphere intact. The most famous one recently was the Chelyabinsk event. How about this? A 66-foot in diameter piece of nickel iron that came through the Earth's atmosphere totally unannounced. So we're hoping that the technology will catch up and maybe we can catch some of these ahead of time. But the next problematic thing is, what do we do about a way to stop it? And there's also some stories about what I'd like to explain a little later, what the Chinese are proposing. Again, the Chinese are doing a lot of things in space, not only with spacecraft, but also radio telescopes and other things. Mm. Uh, Nino is in Hilden, New Jersey. Hello, Nino. Hello. Hello, Frank. Hello, Dr. Sky. Uh, I have a question about the expansion of the universe. It's a question that's always kind of baffled me. But the question is, uh, what is the universe expanding into? Well, that's a very so good maybe question. you can give me a satisfactory answer for that. Uh, well, absolutely, and I wish I could give you an answer that even scientists in this world today, even the best of cosmologists, the honest, true answer is really nobody knows for sure. But when that expansion took place, and I sound like, you know, a teacher that's been scorned because so many of the programs that I've taught over the years, people are always referring to it as the Big Bang. I refer to it as a big expansion. Why do I make a, you know, a very fine point on this? It's because we weren't around, obviously, when this expansion took place. So what astronomers and astrophysicists feel is into that great void, this entire universe that we know today on edge to edge is probably about 45 billion light years on each side, the radius. So now we're probably looking at what? Just multiply that by two, 90 plus you know, billion miles on each edge. 
but nobody is really sure what we're expanding into. And that's a very problematic thing. One of the theories is, and this was one that Stephen Hawking came up with and I think needs further explanation, he's passed on to the infinite, is that we probably live in a world of multiverses where there are multiple universes as if they're sausages on a string. I know that sounds very simplistic, but the real truth of the matter, Nino, is nobody really knows what the universe is expanding into. It's the great ether out there, the great unknown, and it's a fascinating question. I wish I could give you a better answer. I think everybody, even the most high-level scientists, would probably have to say if they're telling you the truth, nobody really knows what it's expanding into. Steve, you mentioned that uh, that Chinese plan to save the Earth. Is that specifically a, a plan to save the Earth from asteroids or from something else? Well, it is. And here's the basic skinny on this. The Chinese are proposing, again, these things take a long time to affect, but here's what they're proposing. They're looking to put two very large optical telescopes at both poles of the moon. Well, we haven't sent humans back there for a while, so this isn't going to happen anytime soon. But the idea actually plays out very well, because in accordance with that, they're looking to put a number of small satellites that would be in the orbit of the, lunar, of, of, of the moon itself. Now, if we detect an asteroid coming in, whether it's small, if it's gigantic, I don't think we can stop it. But it's far better, in the astronomer's opinion, common sense, to be farther away than if we detected it from the ground, meaning here on the Earth. What it would have on board these little satellites, they're rockets, they would have a kinetic energy device. What are that in simple English? It would be like taking a sledgehammer and slamming it and crushing something. They've done this before with a couple of asteroids to test it, and also they could have some other you know, chemical uh, like a bomb or something like that. Not didn't say nuclear. Who knows? But that would hopefully give us more time in the event that an asteroid was coming and we had and were told the truth that we had a little more time to prepare to do something to even deflect it. Don is in Long Beach. Hello, Don. Hi, Frank. Hi, Dr. Sky. I called a couple of times questioning um, why we don't do a return you know, sample mission to the moons of Mars. Well, guess what? I looked yes. up uh, some information, and I found out that Japan in 2024 is going to launch um, a mission. It's called MMX, uh, Mars Moon Exploration. They're going to explore both of the moons, uh, Deimos and, and Phobos. Yes. And from Phobos, they're going, to, they're going to do a sample return mission. So there you go. Well, thank you. I mean, that's one, and I'm always honest with this audience. I mean, there's so many missions. Excuse me, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and Frank, there's obviously so many missions out there. But, Don, you've just enlightened us. And just to add to this, they are some of the most problematic and, and unique moons in the solar system. Many people think they shouldn't be there. Both of them actually discovered in 1877 by an astronomer called Asaph Hall at the Naval Observatory, where the vice president lives, that observatory there, one of the great Clark telescopes. But it was actually theorized, Frank. I think I've mentioned this on the show before. In Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, he describes in his you know, prose and in his writing in the novel the discovery of the moons. He gets it right with the size and the dimensions and the distances from Mars. That was, what, 150 years before they were discovered. That's a strange story, but let's get some sample material from those little tiny moons. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, uh, China is not the only country that's doing exciting things when it comes to space, Not neither is Japan. The NASA, there's so much attention that's paid to the private sector space oh, yeah. exploration, but NASA is still doing some interesting things. What is the SLS moon rocket, and what is the latest with that? Well, this is exciting. It really, in my opinion, hasn't gotten enough uh, media coverage. So here we go. It's called the SLS, the Space Launch System's Orion Moon Rocket. What is it? It looks about the size of a Saturn V. It's a little shorter than 365 feet tall. It still uses the solid rocket motors like that of the space shuttle and, of course, a very powerful series of rockets to get it into space. They've been playing around with this rocket, and I'll be fair to them. Playing is probably not a good word. They put it inside the Vehicle Assembly Building, one of the largest buildings on Earth where the Saturn V was stored in the event of a hurricane or to do work on it. They, of course, put it on the big tractor that takes, it, I think, about four miles to get to the launch pad. They did a kind of a hard test on it to see if they could fuel it up. They put it back into the big building. And we're hearing, this is good news, a launch which might replicate without three astronauts. They're going to put three you know, anthropomorphic dummies inside there <laughs> to do all measurements. But it hopefully could launch as late or early, I should say, as early as the end of August or maybe into September. 
And this is a good mission because it needs to test out and the functionality of SLS. It's a very powerful rocket, and it's giving now both, uh, well, I guess, Elo, you know, Bezos and, of course, Elon Musk some competition here. But they've had this in the planning stages for a while. Its capsule on the top is known as Orion. It's a much larger replicant of the Apollo capsule. And hopefully, and I'm guessing, this is not a good answer, but I'm guessing as they are, to get humans back to the surface of the moon, maybe as early as 2027 or 2028. Wow. Uh, that would certainly be something. 800-848-9222. Jim is in Colorado. Hello, Jim. How are you doing? Jim. Hey, good morning. How are you? Jim, what's you your question? Me? Go ahead. Yeah, I was wondering, uh, all, the, uh, all the greenies and everything, could this, uh, the solar storms right now and all that, be responsible for the global warming that they say we have? You know, I don't think so. And I, and I want to go back and thank, thank you very much for calling in, Jim, from Colorado. I just wanted to mention this very clearly. The all weather comes from the sun. So whether you're a believer in climate change or not, folks, I mean, this is just something I always say. I don't think that the incidence of solar radiation and solar energy or solar output has really been doing anything to cause this modern climate change as we see it. But remember something. We're talking about all over the country, probably Colorado, too. I know here in Phoenix, the temperatures are always hot in the summer, naturally. But back in 1936, we had a tremendous heat wave that was even more obstreperous, hard, more, you know, much more intense than what we have now here in modern times. And then there was no real talk of human activity causing climate change. So, again, the sun does, you know, it's responsible for all the weather. But in this particular case, I don't really think it's responsible for any of the so-called climate change at least not in the short period of time that we're talking about that. But the the trend is that the more recent years are warmer for whatever reason. I mean, that that's a fact, right? There's no debate yes. about that. Absolutely. But I'm saying it again. This is very interesting. The temperature changes, the high temperatures. Why did we get such a high you know, series of temperatures in 1936 that caused a lot of damage and might have been a prelude to the Great Dust Bowl that we had? And that was horrible. I, I did some research on that and couldn't believe how bad the whole Dust Bowl thing was in the Midwest. But you're right. I mean, again, it's, it, to me, a lot, look, a lot of people will say, Frank, oh, this is subtle science. But I'm one of those that likes to just keep an open mind and say, let's look more at these trends. But as Jim brought up here, yeah, there may be something to this. But uh, I don't think directly with Solar Cycle 25 that it's causing the Earth to have a different climate that quickly. I think this is something that's been going on a lot longer. Every week, Steve, we do a, a segment on, uh, on Atlantic City. And one of the things that has nothing to do with gambling that people are pretty excited about is the Atlantic City air show that's coming up on August 24th at the, uh, at the, at the boardwalk. And it's really, it's really great. You could see the, oh, yeah. the Thunderbirds. You could see the Rhino demonstration team. And it's something that I know people in South Jersey really get a, a big kick out of. But uh, this is far from the only air show that's worth watching, isn't it? No, absolutely. And a part of Dr. Sky, so people know, it's not just astronomy and space. We're heavily involved in the subject, of course, of aviation with our photo team. And to just mention, we have a website out there that I'd love the listeners to check out if you're interested in you know, military and civilian aviation. Go to the photorecon.net website. It's pretty much a photo archive, but it's something that we have correspondence out there. My brother Joe does most of this, but these air shows are great. And to see the Thunderbirds, I think it's just a great experience for people who've never seen them. And, of course, the Navy's preeminent team, the Blue Angels. Mm. But there are other big air shows going on. And I just wanted to mention this because I've not been to this one, and I'd love to. And, Frank, I'm sure you would love it. Right now going on is the 2022 EAA Air Venture, the Oshkosh Air Show. That's taking place in Wisconsin. It's probably one of the biggest meets for people, not only in the private area of aviation, experimental airplanes, military, all kinds of things, July 25th through the 31st. That's a place I'd love to get to. And we also find out around the world that the Farnborough Air Show, which is kind of more like a sales thing where they have different companies exhibit different aircraft. And, you know, you go in there with your checkbook for the billions of dollars that you'll spend on these new military platforms. That just ended on July 22nd. But I'd really like to go to this one. How about the Paris Air Show? And there's still time. Mm. June 19th to the 23rd in 2023. And, Frank, a very sad thing happened back there at the Paris Air Show. If people go back in the time capsule, in 1973, the Russians 
they wanted to build and did build a competitive aircraft to the Concorde, which, of course, is it has been flying for so long, and I know people who've flown on it. You probably do too. Mach, you know, going up into the Mach 2 range. They built an aircraft called a Tupolev Tu-144. What did it look like? It looked like, in many ways, like a Concorde, but it was different, and it actually flew different routes from like Sharapovo Airport in Moscow all the way out to Vladivostok. But what did these pilots do at the Paris Air Show? Well, they got into that little competitive mode of who can do half faster and higher and what have you. And they rolled this aircraft around, and sadly, it crashed right in front of the entire spectators. Oh, no. All on board were lost, including some tragically, you know, tragic life, loss of life on the ground. But if people look at that, I mean, not saying to look at gory movies, but the Paris Air Show is always the famous place around the world. But that's something that the Russians tried to do. They had an actually interesting aircraft that consumed so much air, you know, fuel. And I like to call it a dirty burner. What's that? If you ever see those old view movies of B-52s taken off, you see the big exhaust plumes coming out of this. This thing may have gone fast, but it had some of the most dirty burning engines. So anybody interested in the ecology of the world today would say, ah, that one's putting out too much carbon footprint right there. Hmm. But that was sad what happened. Oh, that's for sure. 800-848-9222. Mike is in Queens. Hello, Mike. Yes, sir. Gentlemen, uh, right to it. Good morning. Do, they tell, do, the, do the telescopes have the ability, the, the, the big telescopes that we put up now, uh, to point at a planet, a galaxy, uh, or something else out in the universe that we can see what the elemental emissions are, like, for example, uh, carbon or uranium or gold, oh, yeah. uh, to, get, to give us an idea of what's worth traveling to and what is not? And I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you very much. Well, I like that question, Mike, and here's the basic answer. Yes, they do have the capability of doing this. Obviously, the telescope uses a technology, too, called spectroscopy. Fancy word. It's basically like you had in high school. In school, you had a little prism, and you could see the rainbow colors. What they're doing is looking for elemental lines along what they call angstroms. This gets a little technical, but here it is simply. You'd look at the different – if you take a fire and you burn the different chemical element and you look through a spectroscope, you're going to see certain emission lines – or certain absorption lines. And what you're going to be able to identify there, depending on, let's say we're looking at an exoplanet, and it looks like it has water, at least from what we think, you would be able to tell the different spread spectrum of what elements are in these particular objects, even at a great distance. And that, with the greater telescopes like James Webb, can you imagine the kind of discoveries that we're going to be making to find that planet that is what we might think, Earth-like, and who knows, maybe possibly habitable. Great Abs- Absolutely. 800-848-9222. There, um, in terms of the weather, it's not just the fact that it's hot that is uh, uh, getting people talking about the weather, but uh, there are some fog days in this summer that uh, that's pretty unusual, at least I would think. What's happening in terms of unusual weather beyond the heat that we're seeing this summer? Well, Frank, it goes back to a weather phenomenon we simply call hail, and that's interesting. We see it in all parts of the world, depending on the, you know, the time of year, mostly, of course, in summer seasons. And without going through a super detailed explanation, we take water droplets, we shoot them up high into the way up into the atmosphere, maybe 50,000 feet up where the thunderclouds have a, what we call an anvil head and maybe higher. And then it races down again at super speeds and then pops back up. And what do you get? You get these little things that could be the size of a pea. Or, as I'm going to describe, and I found this out just by doing some research here myself, the most damage ever reported in history about a hailstorm hailstorm damage, I would imagine it occurred like in Oklahoma or Kansas or places like that. No. It happened in my area, Phoenix, Arizona, back in October of 2010. And along the area near where I live, a friend of mine had his van and all the cars on the road were pummeled. In other words, it looked like somebody shot it with a machine gun all the way to the car, sadly dented, damaged to homes. But the bottom line is about $3.5 billion, I said billion dollars in insurance claims. That takes the record. Wow. And I was shocked at that. But the world, as far as having damage from hailstones where people died, goes back into the late 1800s in India, of all places. A hailstorm ripped through that part of the, you know, through the world, killed over 240 people, sadly, Get a load of this. Hailstones the size of oranges. Now, that's something to worry about. Hmm. Thank God we don't see that on a regular basis. I should think but hail so. is a problematic thing in the summer with hail, uh, with thunders. Yeah, absolutely. 800-848-9222. Uh, 
Let me say hello to Joe in Queens. Hello, Joe. Hi, Stephen. Uh, Good morning. My question would be, uh, you know, we sent a couple of probes to Mercury, mm-hmm. and they say that actually it was more fuel consumed than it would have been to send uh, probes going the other direction outside of the solar system due to the uh, difficulty of dealing with the gravity of the sun. Exactly. Now, now could you just go over how does the sun's gravity increase so much as it goes towards Mercury? What, What exactly is happening? Well, here's an interesting answer. The messenger space probe, one of them that we're talking about here, it successfully imaged a planet that looks exactly like that of the moon, you know, just totally cratered, has maybe, maybe a very thin, finite atmosphere, nothing that we could breathe. But the route to get there isn't like you would drive your car down the street, turn left, and then you get to your destination or turn right. It had to take the long way around. So what is that? It goes around the Earth. It would spin out into the solar system to do a slingshot. So when it finally gets to Mercury, it's using enough speed that it would overcome that oppressive gravity of the sun. Because remember, Mercury's distance from the sun is on average of about 36 million miles. Now, people may think, well, that's, that, that, that's far, 35 million We're 93 million miles away from the sun. We all know that from school. But the problematic thing there you're looking at, Joe, is that the gravity of the sun, you need to have enough speed so that you don't, you know, without that speed, the sun's going to take over and say, yep, you ain't going to get a hold on Mercury. I'm in control. That is the sun. And that's a very difficult mission. So what do you do? You use a lot of fuel to get there as opposed to pushing yourself out into the solar system where it might necessarily be what it is, less gravitational force than you would have as you get closer to the sun. And remember, if you get close to the sun, we have a telescope that's gotten close to the sun. It's, it's an amazing t- uh, solar telescope. And when it got close to the sun, I read these reports, it was traveling at over 350,000 miles an hour. And luckily wow. for it, it has an orbit that doesn't let it get sucked into the sun. So you'd weigh, I think you'd weigh, what, 20 or 30 times your weight if you could stand on the sun. But I'd rather stay here. Oh, yeah, especially with... Uh... With the my belt uh, buckles needing expansion as much as they are, last thing I need is a sunburn and a uh, and a larger waistline. Uh, we're going to continue with your calls in just a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Doctor Sky is here for the hour answering your questions on space. Whoever comes up with the most intelligent and most creative question, as uh, judged by Steve Cates, we are going to give you a pair of tickets to see the Staten Island Ferry Hawks on WABC Day on Saturday. So that should be a lot of fun. Hopefully, I'll get to see. A lot of you there. We'll continue straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Sun indeed. We're talking about the sun with uh, Steve Cates, a man who knows a great deal about uh, the sun, the moon, all all the stars in the galaxy, and uh, the best places to observe them from Earth. You want to check out his blog? You can do so at ktar.com. There's some great stuff on there. Steve, speaking of sky watching, anything uh, coming up in the sky in the near future that people should keep an eye on, particularly in our area? Well, we have plenty, and I just want to remind people, these are the dog days of summer. And I looked this up a long time ago, and it's interesting and proud to mention here. The dog days of summer have a connection to astronomy big time. The brightest star in the heavens we know is Sirius, the dog star. And to the Egyptians, it was known as Sabdet. 
And this is interesting because what they what they looked at, the Egyptians, they saw this thing called the helical rising of Sirius right around this period of time in July. What did that mean? It meant the flooding season, the Nile would, you know, the, the, the growth season, the planting season. Sirius itself is known as the scorcher. So the combination of that star rising before the sun, we get what we call the dog days of summer from the constellation of Canis Major, the dog. That's the constellation of the large dog. So that occurs right now. That's been going on since July 3rd to August 11th. But in the sky, this is interesting. We have some opportunities all across your listening area on the other side of midnight. The moon goes new in just a day. So obviously this is the dark of the moon, as we call it. The best time, in my opinion, whether you're in Colorado, whether you're here in Arizona, wherever you're listening to this radio show. If you have a clear sky, get a pair of binoculars and look to the southern sky right around 10 p.m. This is the magnificence, Frank, of the summer Milky Way in the core of the galaxy of mm. Sagittarius, the archer. That's a beautiful thing to see. And meteors from an upcoming meteor shower called the Perseids are underway right now. It peaks around the 11th or 12th of August. But the problem there is the, the full uh, moon at that particular time uh, will kind of wipe out. So if I, would, if I was out, and I will be out, and hopefully people will be right now, you're looking up into the northeast sky from about, say, 2 a.m. till sunrise, any of those meteors you see are Perseids up in that direction from a famous comet called Swift-Tuttle. So that's interesting. Absolutely. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to John in Freehold. Hello, John. Hello, gentlemen. Good morning. Um, so I have uh, two questions, if you don't mind. The first ahead, one is if the, if the universe is expanding that would mean that it would be giving it direction and velocity even if it goes out in you know all directions sure um so if we're if we're looking into the past when we look out say there's life all the way on the other side mm -hmm. um would like they wouldn't be looking at the same time as us right no, not like at all. Thing, how would that work? Well, here it is. If you look at the expansion, let's say I was right at the point where it started, that dot, let's say, hypothetically. Obviously, that's 13.8 billion years ago. So let's say we discovered where these new images came in, John. Let's say we discovered that there's this galaxy and we found a planet in there. That's 35 billion light years away. Well, how does that make sense? Because it's been expanding ever since then. But that was 35 billion years ago that we're seeing it. So in other words, the light from the time 35 billion years it took to get here, whatever civilizations may have been there may not be there at all. And it's so interesting that you bring this up because if everything's expanding, like Nino had asked before, what's it expanding into? Nobody really knows. So it's one of the greatest conundrums. But, but, but here's something else, Frank, and I wanted to mention to John and the listeners. When we see the universe expanding, we would think like you threw the rock into a calm pond, you see the ripples eventually fade out. No, what's happening mm -hmm. is one of the big conundrums in physics today, or quantum physics, is something called dark energy, meaning that something in gravity, instead of it slowing down, is forcing it to go faster. And these are some of the great mysteries that we're trying to resolve in the world today. But, John, you bring up some good points. Uh, we're looking back in time, so if there was any life from there... It's look look at the time distance. They they might they have to be a pretty hardy civilization, don't you think, guys, to survive? Oh yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, let me ask you this, Steve. Uh, the International Space Station that has been a longtime partnership with the United States and Russia. Now oh, that yeah. there's all the the this tension with the United States and Russia, to pull it, put it mildly, Russia is apparently planning to pull out of the International Space Station after 2024. How big of a deal is this? Uh, can this space station continue without a Russian partnership? And do you see any way that uh, Russia may reconsider their decision to pull out? Well, it's interesting you bring this up. They're going to end it, as you mentioned, after 2024, political tensions aside. But what they're looking to do, their new director of their space organization is called Yuri Borisov. He was a former deputy prime minister in Russia. They've decided, and he's put the paper over to Vladimir Putin, and what are they going to do? They want to build their own. So mm -hmm. when he put that proposal in front of uh, Putin, he just looked and said, good. So the truth of the matter is, I think we could have done without the Russians. I think Americans could have done this. And I think the Russians could have done this pretty much on their own. 
But it's sad to see that that's penetrating at, le- at least the, I don't know, many people out there are smart. I'm sure so many smart listeners out there, they get it. There's been such tension between with the Ukraine war that obviously Russia really doesn't want to be there, but they'll kind of say, eh, we'll cooperate until, you know, we'll build our own. And don't forget, China's building the one we just talked about. If you know the expansion of that, that's going to be big. All these rockets going up, we're going to have almost like, what? we need a traffic cop in the sky pretty soon because we're going to have so many different platforms up there, and including the gateway space station that they need to build around the moon as part of that future SLS project to the moon. They will be building a space, a space station, I should say, around the moon, and that's a smart move because if I go to the lunar surface with you and let's say we want to have a replenishment of supplies, it's hard to go all the way back home to the Earth. Mm. We need to have a docking station, and that's a very smart move. Roberta is on Staten Island. Hello, Roberta. Oh, hi, Dr. Sky and Frank. I just want to know if, 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 if Dr. Sky believes that, that the climate change is as bad as the, the loony left would have us believe. Do we have to worry that much about it? Well, I think, let me say this. Again, I, I don't want to take a political position on something like this, and, and I would, but I, I think it's more like to educate through science here. I, I wonder sometimes, I mean, I'm concerned about that myself. I, I'm not a polluter. I hope nobody out there just intentionally throws mercury in the garbage or, you know, other, other sure. toxic things. But the reality, I think, Roberta, is I just don't know how to answer this. I mean, as Americans, we're being told that there's this great climate change thing and some around the world, but there are nations, and I think we could look into this and we'd probably look and point our finger at even China. They're not doing everything they can to, to reduce the carbon footprint. Does that mean we don't care? I just hope and pray that uh, maybe somehow, maybe I'm being a little too overly optimistic, Roberta, hopefully somehow we can all figure out a way to get along here because nobody wants to intentionally pollute the planet. But uh, that, that that's another topic for another day, right? Uh, yeah, no, that, that I'd certainly, uh, I don't know that we're going to cover that in the course of the next few minutes. <laughs> it, apparently, we are celebrating the 10th anniversary of NASA's Curiosity rover on Mars. Uh, what is what is the Curiosity rover? Why has this been such a big deal over the course of the last 10 years? And what has this contributed to what we've learned about the Red Planet over the years? Well, we sure know how to put down a spacecraft on the surface of Mars and have it run around, albeit if it's nu- nuclear-powered or solar-powered. But we've gotten a lot of interesting information. And hopefully nobody's come up with the answer that everybody who wants studies Mars wants to know. Was there life? Is is there life still in those rocks on the surface? Moving, though, to transpire to the other, the Perseverance rover, that's another success story. And obviously now that little helicopter called Ingenuity, they've kind of shut it down because if we go to the planet Mars right now and take the audience with us, Frank, it's now winter in the northern hemisphere of Mars. So a little Ingenuity, the little amazing helicopter that spins with the rotor blades much faster than Earth because of the thin atmosphere, it's made, I think, like 29 flights, but they had to curtail it because dust builds up on the solar panels and the lack of sun in the, in the winter, you know, the low angle of the sun, doesn't give it enough oomph. But there on the surface of Mars, that's in a crater called Gale Crater, which if any place on Mars that we've looked at, that may have been a lake at one time, and they're right in a dry lake bed. So we're hoping that these spacecraft uh, like the Curiosity and this Perseverance will hopefully give us some answers before Elon goes there on his one-way mission. Otis is in Friendship, New York. Hello, Otis. Yes. Uh, my question is, if the universe began 13.6 billion years ago, mm-hmm. started from a small Big Bang, how can light just now uh, be reaching us from shortly after the beginning of the universe? Wow, this is a good question there, Frank. Otis, you've you're got, you got something going on here, and I'll answer it this way. Around 380,000 years, let's say, after the so-called big expansion, as I call it, other than the Big Bang, the universe changed dramatically. There was a great heat buildup. And this is technical, but they call it the cosmic microwave background radiation. In other words, it's like you took an egg and threw it into a pan, and you didn't use anything to, you know, when you try to scrape it out there, it just burnt the pan. At that point in time, things changed dramatically. The universe literally heated up to a great degree, producing an incredible amount of photon energy, meaning light. And this is not just that little dot that we saw when it expanded, but it gave us today everything that we know of 
what you're made of, Otis, what I'm made of, what Frank's made of, everything you see around you is all star stuff from that creation. So light more than likely started to propagate the universe when that cosmic microwave background radiation thing, it's just a searing signature that, that literally coats the whole entire universe. It was like another heat up and build up, somewhat referred to as cosmic inflation. But I got to be very careful when I use that word, Frank, inflation. Yes, sad to say, folks, there's really inflation in the creation of the universe, <laughs> not just here on the Earth. John is in Bayonne. Hello, John. Hi, Dr. Sky. You mentioned the uh, moment of expansion. Yes. Um, what if the Webb telescope can um, see before the moment of expansion? I know you can't what? see. You're talking about 100 million years after the moment, but right. what if we could actually go back and see before it happened? What would be there? Well, I can say this to the audience once again, John, and I'm very humble here. I probably have no, I have no answer to this, but the guy who really should be doing that question and answering it, he's passed on to the infinite. And that was Stephen Hawking. What was he mm. doing, John? He was actually extrapolating mathematically what came before the initial little dot. Like if you took a laser on the wall and that was the beginning of the universe, they say that within the first trillionth of a second, think about this, the universe could have been held in your hand maybe the size of a large orange or a grapefruit. But nobody knows what was before that. Again, the only thing I can tell you from my level of experience is that there are probably multi-universes, multiverses out there that also have gone on through time. But this is another one of those conundrums that, what will we need, Frank? About two billion hours to talk about it. Right? Yeah, uh, and how. Uh, all right, uh, Dr. Sky, we have had a lot of good questions this hour, and we're going to turn to you to select a winner to see who gets some baseball tickets this Saturday. Well, what do you think? here we go. And I thought that Nino's question about cosmology, the expansion of the universe and what it's expanding into, I would give Nino the tickets to the great ferry hall. All right, Nino, call us back, 800-848-9222. We'll give you a pair of tickets. Steve, it is always a treat to talk with you. I'll look forward to doing it again soon. Likewise, thank you for having me on the other side of it. All right. Uh, a lot more to get to for the over the course of the next three hours. Maybe we'll even squeeze in some more space stuff. In any event, uh, if uh, there's ever an hour that encourages you to say the three little words, it's this one. Keep asking questions.